CIUT 89.5, the sound of your city. Stream CIUT at www.ciut.fm. The views and opinions expressed on the following program are those of the producers and or the persons appearing on the program and do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of CIUT-FM. Welcome. Yes, it's that time of the week. It is, in fact, the Radical Reverend Show. Stay tuned. Well, welcome to the show, and it's my absolute honor, I'm a, a real fangirl of this particular person, uh, to have on the show uh, Dr. Eric Feigl-Ding. Uh, now, his, his bio is long, but I'm going to read you some excerpts of it. First of all, he's, uh, of course, um, a public health scientist uh, who is currently a senior fellow at the Federation of American Scientists in Washington, D.C. He was formerly a faculty member and researcher at Harvard Medical School and Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. He's also the chief health economist for Microclinic International. Uh, and uh, Dr. Feigl Ding's research and advocacy have primarily focused on systemic reviews, meta-analysis, obesity, cancer prevention, and drinking water safety. That's quite a broad range. Uh, Feigl Ding is a Paul and Daisy Soros Fellow and a World Economic Forum Global Shaper. Uh, uh, how he came to my attention and to the attention of the show is that in late January 2020, Feigl Ding's early alarm and call for COVID-19 preparedness went viral on Twitter, where he has over 500,000 followers. And Feigelding later commented on the COVID-19 pandemic and mitigation efforts in various media and has always, always urged action. Um, Dr. Feigelding, welcome to the show. It's an honor to have you here. Yeah, thank you so much and um, appreciate that intro. Um, this is a very strange, brave new world we live in. So. Um, I think, you know, speaking out is some somewhat of a challenge, but uh, I always feel that we we have to do the right thing. So thank you for having me. Absolutely. Uh, now, you are and we have been focusing on change agents. Uh, there are lots and lots of activists in the world that do wonderful work, but very few manage to break through to actually make the changes that they're advocating for. You're one of those. And I wanted to start with something that uh, you became known for, and that's as a whistleblower um, in uh, where Big Pharma is concerned, where Merck was concerned with Vioxx. Can you talk about that, um, that work that you've done around that, uh, how it started, why you started into that, because it's not easy, and just what happened? Tell us the story. Yeah, thanks. This was about, we have to rewind, about 16, 17 years ago now. Um, the, as you know, the, the Vioxx thing, the Vioxx is a painkiller. It, it's, it's, it was once touted better than the NSAIDs like, you know, ibuprofen, you know, Advil, um, because it doesn't cause stomach ulcers, stomach bleeding. And, you know, it was once considered a wonder drug. A uh, painkiller doesn't cause the same negative side effects. Um, but the problem was, of course, there were a lot of adverse things that emerge over time. And things you don't see it because with painkillers, most painkiller studies are really short. You know, you just need to do like a one or two week study to study the pain. But a lot of the effects, so like heart attacks, 
uh, arrhythmia, kidney failures, those are very long-term things. So you would almost rarely ever find them in these short-term studies. But if you follow the trickle of data, and that's what we do as epidemiologists, um, we hunt for epidemics, um, it, it, you know, it, it, didn't, it didn't add up because there was a way, if you flip coins enough times, you realize there's way more tails in all these studies than there should be if you add them up. And so we kind of like cumulatively added them up and we realized that, yes, it did cause uh, arrhythmia, heart arrhythmia and kidney damage. Um, and, you know, this is a billion dollar blockbuster drug. And we showed that they should have known about the kidney damage back in 2000 and they should have known about the heart arrhythmia by 2004. Yeah, it wasn't withdrawn until 2005 or early 2006, I think. Um, so it's very sad. And in certain ways, it was a kind of like a, a failed whistleblower, because by the time the study was published, the, the drug was already finally taken off the market, but the damage has been done for all those years, right? So, um, you know, that was my first foray in failed whistleblowing. <laughs> and I've had a few other failed whistleblowing events. And, uh, but it taught me a lesson that how you speak to the world, how quickly and urgently and getting public attention and action on something, you know, whenever you did suspect it was risky, the data was already lining up poorly, it really makes a difference. And clearly the pandemic has taught us uh, reacting fast and early saves lives. Sitting on your uh, hands and, you know, punting until all hell breaks loose when hospitals are overloaded, that is too late. Um, but I've had a lot of, you know, hard knock lessons about about that. But uh, in, in certain ways, that kind of like repelled a lot of the things that I, that I did later, but um, uh, as well as some other childhood things that motivated me. But we don't well, have to go there. Talk about, yeah, well, talk about uh, a few of those childhood things, because what's fascinating to me about your life and the lives of others who have managed to change things, and I would not downplay what you did. I mean, you were part of what got that drug off the market, and uh, and that's significant. Um, but but yeah, what what about you makes you go into these, can I call them fights? Certainly struggles um, on behalf of, of, of patients of consumers um, and uh, and others don't. So what's the difference in you? Well, I think um, my childhood, I was a very normal child. Um, I play a lot of video games, graduated high school at age 18. But, uh, but what really like lit a fire was when I was 17 years old, they discovered a tennis ball, baseball sized tumor right here in my chest. And at first they thought it was a non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, which is usually always fatal. And when you're 17, you get a preliminary diagnosis like that. That's pretty scary. Luckily it wasn't that, but I lost, but you know, they did a sternotomy, opened my rib cage after they cut open um, the, my sternum, took out part of my right lung, took out uh, part of my outer sheath of my heart uh, as well as took out one of my thymus glands um, where T-cells mature, um, you know, I, it gave me a second chance at life. Like, I survived. It was a very large tumor, but I survived. 
And in certain ways, that kind of like second chance of life really like reinvigorated my life goals. That's, you know, we're, we're, we've been given a few extra years on Earth. Um, and it's about what you do, you know, not necessarily fortune or glory or kind of career advancement in that, in that sense. So, uh, and, you know, over the next six years, I finished college and, uh, and uh, finished my doctorates, my dual doctorates at Harvard, um, because life is short. And, and that's my, my, part of my driving passion. Uh, we're talking to uh, Dr. Feigl Ding here uh, on the show and uh, honored to do so. Uh, we're talking about his, his his real status as a, as a whistleblower in a number of fields. And before we get to COVID, um, I want to mention another one, and that was, you know, your cohort study of Major League Baseball and the relationship between obesity and mortality. Talk a little bit about that. Why that? Yeah, that was during the, do you remember the Mark McGuire um, you know, home run um, race, and then they realized that uh, Mark McGuire did it because of steroid use, right? It was, it was pretty conclusive that he used these androstenedione, all these androgen um, uh, steroids for his muscle building that allowed him to hit so many home runs. And then the kind of tarnished baseball. But, you know, it also got in question of, you know, our big, you know, think Babe Ruth. Babe Ruth is obese, Right. But he was a heavyweight slugger. Uh, but, you know, but they were athletes. So along this time, people said, well, it's OK. Athletes, you can have a high BMI. You know, you can you're all muscle and it doesn't really matter if you're an athlete, if you have a high body mass index. But, you know, um, you know, one of my, my one of my doctors is in epidemiology, my other doctors in nutrition. So obesity became like this obesity epidemiology is like this uh, at this nexus. And we know that it's, even if you're all muscle, that it's not really true. But how do you prove it, right? Because how do you prove that having high BMI, even among athletes with high muscle mass usually, is related to increased risk of mortality? And the only way to do that is you take professional athletes. Football is too young, not enough major league, you know, NFL football players have been around and there's no database for NBA, but Major League Baseball did. And so we took all the Major League Baseball, only the major leagues, no minor leagues, no amateur other whatsoever. And then we analyzed their um, their body mass index at their Major League debut and then whether they died. And we found that, yes, um, if you had high BMI, you also increase your risk of death. And this was especially even stronger among home run hitters, like you know, uh, the big the big Bambino and the other home run hitters. But it was also true even if you were a high stolen base person, which means even if you're a super muscular sprinter, because only sprint Babe Ruth can't steal bases, right? But only sprinters can. Then even if that's um, you're a sprinter, you still also have increased risk, which means. You know, even if you're muscle, it, it's so in certain ways, it kind of dispelled this notion that, oh, if you're an athlete, high BMI, don't worry about it. That's not true. And the fact that it's extra worse for home run hitters who are really, really bulky. So it, in certain ways, it was it was a study that we were did because it was a hot topic of the times. And, you know, I don't know if base major league has cleaned up that much more. Than back then, but uh, 
I think it, it really shook that, you know, the BMI is really important, not just, oh, hand-waving, oh, it's fine, you're athletic. Yeah, I mean, I, just, you know, they seem, you know, I, I don't watch baseball regularly, but they seem fitter. I mean, do you think it had an impact? Well, they do seem fitter, but of <laughs> course, you know, that's that that doesn't always carry over in the rest of their life right and i think that people have this notion that hey you know he's athletic he'll be fine that's not always true of course um so you know it was one of those other things that we in addition we had like flint uh during the flint lead poisoning we also um did the project to kind of like showcase how it's not just flint but tons of thousands of communities across the U.S. had high lead, lead levels, um, which is a tragedy. And, you know, there's no really good, easy way to look it up. Like, you can look it up at the, e F, uh, the EPA database. It's really hard to figure it out. You, to find the lead levels near you, you, you have to spend like an hour to download the database from another place, and it's almost in uninterpretable. Um, basically, you know, if you had high lead levels like Flint, but elsewhere in the country, you would have no idea. And I think part of that, you know, the public transparency around this data showcases that, you know, if only we built a database to aggregate it, and we did it for like a year, uh, that you can make everything transparent, you could search the water uh, situation near you, it would hopefully help a lot of people. Um, and so, you know, we, we kind of focus on these kind of projects that really had public benefit, but sometimes a little too late for certain crises like Flint. Well, well, again, you're being modest uh, because certainly Flint made the news. And, uh, and what is the situation? We haven't heard about it lately. Um, is that situation completely resolved, partially resolved? What's the water like in Flint, Michigan? Partially, like the immediate leaching in Flint has ended, but the pipes, the lead pipe situation is still there. And part of the Biden infrastructure bills, of course, to replace all these lead pipes in all these cities across, across America, but the pipes are still there. Um, and they just, the real crisis in Flint was that they, uh, they didn't uh, carefully tune the water and if you don't carefully um, prevent corrosion, all the all the lead leaches out of the pipes into the water, and that's what have what caused the Flint crisis. And so, they they're monitoring it, but it's always a tricky, a shaky situation because it could happen again if people got lax in monitoring the corrosion in the water, and then the lead again corrodes right into the water again from the lead pipes. We have to change the pipes. We have to change the pipes across the country. So this is one of those ongoing, you know, there's so many small crises, you know, pandemic is just one of them, but there's so many small public health crises that just are just below the radar. And of course you hear Flint, but there's thousands more Flint, thousands more. And, you know, I think lead poisoning, we no one accepts lead poisoning as okay. And, and I want to draw a correlation with COVID, you know, we know that there's long COVID effects on cognitive function. Um, and, you know, I just want to show you a comparison. Like among the, a British study of 80,000 people showed that if you had COVID and intubated, you lost seven points equivalent IQ. 
hospitalized but not intubated, you lost about three to four points. But even if you're not hospitalized, we had symptoms, you lost anywhere from one to three points of IQ. And, and that's just for mild to moderate COVID that's not hospitalized. But I, you know, lead poisoning, no one accepts lead poisoning for kids, right? The lead poisoning effects on kids is a two-point IQ drop. If nobody accepts the effects of lead poisoning on kids and two points is unacceptable, and which is a huge number, by the way, if you shift the mean of a population by negative two, why do we accept it? as living with the virus, long COVID, oh, you weren't hospitalized, you didn't die. Why do we accept that as okay in our current society to live with the virus? That's morally reprehensible. I do not know where their source of you know, morality comes from. There, but there's such a lack of morality in this world where that's just really, really frustrating. And, and you know, this is part of why I'm trying to raise the alarm that this is really bad. It's not just deaths. It's not just hospitalizations and costs, you know. And even when you're hospitalized, it's even if you don't have COVID, but the hospital is overwhelmed with COVID, you're not going to get your cancer uh, surgeries. You're not going to get your heart attack uh, and heart surgeries and other things like that. All these things have a cascade. Where's your moral compass in preventing human suffering? Talking to, um, yeah, uh, you know. yes, yeah. uh, talking to Dr. Feigl uh, Ding here, um, uh, one of the, in one, one piece I read on him said he's one of the top 2% scientists in the world, and, and, and you segued right into COVID, and that's, of course, what we want to talk about, um, the pandemic that's just not going away, um, a pandemic that is spurred on, I think you've shown this more than most in your, in your Twitter commentary, um, by policy. It's spurred on by policy policy and lack of policy. Um, so, so talk about, you know, you were one of the first people to sound the alarm about how dangerous it was, um, what was necessary, and you took some flack for that. Talk about that. Yeah, those were the early days um, when, uh, you know, China, you know, the signals were coming out of Wuhan. It was bad. Um, and, you know, if anyone knows anything about China social media, usually it's heavily controlled. There's censors who can censor almost any bad news if there's a government control over the message. But there was no government control over this. The, the, even the Chinese government had no idea what was happening. They couldn't figure it out. It was just utter chaos. And, and people who understand China and what happens there know, knew that basically crap was hitting the fan. And that this is going to be really, really bad. But the rest of the world was not awake to it. The rest of the world was completely oblivious to this little incident in this city in central China called Wuhan. But um, in many ways, I wanted to blow the whistle. It's like, but you know, you're a scientist. You have to wait for some shred of data to support that this is really bad. Besides anecdotes, and so when the R not paper on um, how transmissible. Um, the original Wuhan strain was of 3.8. You know, I said, this is holy mother of God. This is a thermonuclear level bad pandemic that's going to rival what we've seen since 1918, which today our U.S. mortality has already surpassed. Um, but, but nobody was paying attention. So, and from all my previous experiences and frustrations with whistleblowing, um, 
Um, also with Theranos, we skipped over that. That mm. was another failed one because we, <laughs> well, knew, that, failures, we knew that Theranos was the laboratory <laughs> company was fraud because those of us working in la- on science knows what they were doing was absolutely impossible without yeah, some maybe sort of give, fraud. Since you've, you've segued into that, give us a little bit of background so that those who don't yeah, know so there about Theranos. Is laboratory yeah. testing that basically says there are wonder test one drop of blood can test anything. You know, you don't need fancy machines. You don't need full drawing of your arm or test tube. One drop is all you need. It was like this magical thing that did not make sense because it was scientifically impossible. So one time she came to Harvard uh, and I brought all my friends and, uh, as witness. She was giving a lecture for her Harvard X Fund Award. And I said, this is fraud, basically. It is scientifically impossible. All of laboratory scientists disagree with you. This is what you show is just absolutely impossible. And, you know, she just, you know, punted, prevaricated a little bit. And of course, five months later, you know, the Wall Street Journal investigation on her, and now she's on trial. Um, And now she's basically known as the biggest fraudster in, in Silicon Valley. But I tried and there to is a movie alarm. about it, if you and, want to oh, watch yeah, there's it. Movie, there's a movie about this, too. But I, I was a failed whistleblower because in many ways, I didn't know how to do it right back then. And so well, my, my you have about the segue is yeah. unless you get your message heard, you're going to be a failed whistleblower, right? Uh, whether it's publishing a paper too late, um, whether it's, uh, you know, you know, calling her out in person, but ineffectively. Uh, all these things, there's a lot of things, there's a duty to warn, but there's also a duty to warn in a way that is heard and effective. And in many ways, you know, I, I segued out of academia. I left Harvard, you know, full-time uh, positions because I wanted to affect policy because public health is policy policy is politics there's some people who say oh why do you have to get in politics no politics clearly as you've all learned during the pandemic decides the policies that make or break the pandemic that decide people's lives and whether they die literally uh, and the hospitals are overrun so public health is policy policy is politics so you have to segue and be effective in policy in order to really be effective in public health. And, and you have certainly done that on the Twitter. The first step of that is to, is to be heard and to be effective uh, in, in changing that, in, in changing the conversation. Yeah. So talk about, go, let's go back to COVID um, and talk about, I mean, you have done, uh, again, talking to Dr. Feigelding here about his incredible activism over the years on various topics, as you've heard, um, but particularly came to, to note um, uh, when uh, the coronavirus, when COVID hit. Um, and so you were one of the early warning um, folk and uh, you took to Twitter and made that a thing. Um, uh, and that went viral, and that led to both your, you getting some flack from others in the scientific community, saying, what does he know? Um, and uh, yet a lot of followers uh, who really did want to know what was going on. And, you know, yes, we're 1988, uh, 1918, uh, 2.0 here. Um, so talk about that. Um, 
uh, right yeah. now in your country, I mean, parts of our country too in Canada, and of uh, Dr. Feigelding's American, um, there's this horrendous public policy being put into, into place. People are ignoring it as a pandemic. People in some of your states are even forbidding wearing of masks and basic, uh, you know, talk about this. Why? Why do you think this is happening? Yeah, that is very frustrating. You know, never had I could have imagined that our leaders will literally let people, you know, go and die with their a complete dereliction of duty in terms of their horrible policy responses. Um, and, you know, that's really something we've grappled with. Like early pandemic, of course, when you raise the alarm, uh, people, of course, this want to dismiss, that's impossible. I might as well said aliens were coming next month uh, because it was just something no one's ever seen before. And so if they haven't seen it before, they don't believe it's possible. Right in their in their lifetime, they, almost nobody since the 1918 is still alive. So, I wanted to really, really raise that alarm. Of course, I was ready to take a heat. You know, I've 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 lived in certain ways. I've lived a good life, but I think that to truly you know make a difference in the world, it's to see you know whether you have the moral courage to do what's right, and what is right is not always popular, and what is popular is not always right. And it was one of those moments where, you know, I think for the better of the world, it's it's better to raise the alarm. And, you know, I don't have an academic career to protect in terms of trying to desperately win grants and promotions in that sense. So if not me, who else in, in that sense? So uh, and, and Dr. Mike Ryan of WHO says, you know, in this pandemic, if you want to be 100% certain before you move, you will uh, lose the pandemic. You know, being being perfect and is the enemy of good. You have to move fast. Um, and I think that's the key thing. And so many of our leaders just abdicated responsibility around that. And of course, there's, what is it, you know, WHO once said, uh, there's no evidence of human-to-human -human transmission on January 15th. Well, there is. Oh, it's not airborne. Oh, it is. Oh, uh, there's no asymptomatic transmission. You don't need to wear a mask. And then it became, you don't need to wear a mask unless you have symptoms. And it's like, no, 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 no. And, and then it's like, oh, oh you should mask. Um, but basically, they kind of dismiss masks, and then they dismiss asymptomatic transmission, you know, hence you don't need to wear a mask unless you have symptoms. And then they were wrong on all these. And this is not just W, this is like tons of scientists. And then of course, there's no reinfection. Once you're infected, you're immune. There's Talk no about that, immunity, because that's your latest tweets have been around that. Yeah, People who've had COVID think they're immune. They Talk think they're it. completely immune. And that's not true. You know, the reinfection is a breakthrough, right? Uh, just like back, there's breakthrough vaccine, vaccine's not perfect. Um, there's breakthroughs for, uh, for natural infection immunity too. And that's also why convalescent plasma, taking the plasma of someone who's recovered, it doesn't always work. It sometimes works, doesn't always work because not everyone mounts a good um, uh, antibody response. And also, you know, there's a survivor bias where, uh, you know, the, the people who have survived today and you measure the immune system, yes, they have some immunity, but guess who 
didn't have enough, the ones who already died, right, last year. And so, and also some people, you know, their immune system doesn't even build up strong enough to test positive antibodies. So you wouldn't even know that they were previously infected, especially last year where tests were horribly low in availability. Um, so sometimes uh, it looks like uh, people with natural uh, immunity, uh, natural infection immunity are immune, but they're not. And it wanes that we show that immune, once you're past six months, 180 days, the UK uh, Public Health England data shows that your reinfection also soars. But the latest data shows that re breakthrough infections from a natural immunity is way higher than breakthroughs from vaccines. Um, so, so those who refuse to vaccinate because, oh, I've already had COVID, uh, that's a very risky gamble, very risky gamble. You should at least get another shot. But altogether, there's a lot of misinformation around this. And, and you know, vaccinologists, you know, uh, friends of mine, like, you know, at Harvard, as well as in Texas, uh, they're, they're so frustrated at some of the misinformation because there's, you know, you know, the movie Inconvenient Truth. It's, it's a very inconvenient truth that there's global warming. You have to deal with global warming, stop oil use and coal use. It's also very inconvenient that COVID spreads asymptomatically, has reinfection, now that you have to vaccinate, that we have that you have to vaccine mandate, and that, you know, people are still getting sick and still breakthroughs and you have to mask even if you're vaccinated because of of you know, of transmission of asymptomatic and mild transmission among vaccines. Like vaccines work. But there was a lot of, you know, the CDC says you don't need to wear a mask anymore. That was a dead wrong um, uh, kind of conclusion. I said, you know, it was just horribly, horribly, horrible policy. And I called it out for months and months because Delta was ripping across India and across UK. And it was coming. You know, Delta clearly is our 2.0 pandemic in 2021. But people, they're even really good respected scientists, friends of mine that I respected, that says, we have vaccines, there's no worry, stop scaring people with these scariants. No, these scariants have greater breakthroughs and vaccines wane just like um, natural infection immunity wanes. And there's there's this addiction to ho hopeism sometimes that I want hope too but I'm a realist and pragmatist. And that's why if we don't come together and mitigate as much as possible, this virus will keep blowing through the population, keep evolving, and we're gonna be on this treadmill again. Uh, we just have a minute or two left. This has been phenomenal talking to Dr. Feigl Ding uh, about uh, his whistleblowing, his change agency, uh, his activism that we're so appreciative of. Uh, you also threw yourself into the political world and ran uh, to become a, a Democratic contender. What made you do that? Well, that was in 2018. Um, it was after Donald Trump was elected and Normally as a scientist, this is when I still originally belong, believed in academia. Normally what you do as a scientist, you do your research, you publish your research into uh, the, the ether and hope that some policy leader will use it to better mankind um, and better our society. Well, 
under Donald Trump administration, that does not matter whatsoever. Uh, research and science absolutely had zero credibility and influence uh, in his administration. Uh, there was a, just like there was a women's movement, there was also a science movement. And hence, you know, a lot of this March for Science movements also emerged during that time. And as a scientist, you know, sitting back and watching the world burn um, was just something I couldn't do as a scientist anymore because the, the system in which the science influences policy to make the world better was just completely, you know, up in smoke, peeing into the wind and during that time. And that's why I stepped up and wanted to uh, run for Congress in my home district where I grew up in Pennsylvania back then. So, uh, but, you know, this is obviously uh, a, a very, politics is very unpredictable, but, but I learned a lot of lessons about advocacy and also learned that most people don't know what epidemiology was back in 2018. <laughs> Well, we, we certainly do now. And thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you, uh, talking to Dr. Uh, Eric uh, Feigelding, uh, who was the whistleblower for all of us, really, uh, not just in the United States, but in Canada, too, and around the world, to tell us uh, what we should expect from COVID, what we got from COVID, and what we should still be aware of in COVID. We're still there. Thank you so much for being on the show. Uh, and keep on keeping on. Thank you. Thank you. Stay safe. The sound of your city. CIUT 89.5 Toronto. Welcome back to the Radical Reverend Show. Uh, we're so delighted to have as our second guest today, um, uh, really uh, Professor Elaine Power. She's an amazing woman and she's on the show as are all my guests because she's uh, accomplished an incredible amount uh, and certainly in this case in an area that really needs it and we're talking here about poverty issues generally but basic income um, as a subset of the answer to the poverty issue. Uh, Elaine Power is a professor of kinesiology and health studies at Queen's and she is the co-author along with Jamie Swift of the case for basic income, and also, of course, an activist, not just an academic. Elaine, welcome to the Radical Reverend Show. Oh, thank you so much for having me. So let's start with you, just as a person. Why, um, why poverty generally and, and basic income specifically? Why did you pick this up as an issue that you really wanted to spend your time on? That's a great question. Um, I've been doing work on food insecurity for almost all my adult life. So uh, mostly in the area of research and looking at how income affects people's ability to afford the food that they need to be healthy and to be active and to have you know, a, a, a good diet and uh, culturally appropriate. And so um, I think I first learned about basic income in 1999 when I was a graduate student at the University of Toronto. And it was very much an abstract theoretical idea and when I came to Queen's in 2004, I was teaching a course on the social determinants of health. And so that's basically, you know, how things like income affects people's health, housing, colonialism, employment, gender, and so on. And I, I taught basic income right from the start in 2004, but very much as an abstract idea. Um, seemed like, seemed, seemed, has always seemed like a no-brainer to me that we would uh, give people an unconditional amount of income that enables them to meet basic necessities of life without having to jump through 
a million hoops and having to undergo the surveillance of the social assistance system. Um, so in 2013, I had one of those random chance meetings uh, with Rob Rayner, who was at that point starting a national campaign for basic income. He came to my class and spoke, and uh, that was the was November 2013 was the first meeting of our Kingston Action Group for a Basic Income Guarantee, and uh, I've been actively um, advocating for basic income as a political, as a as something that could be done, <laughs> something feasible, not just an abstract idea since then. And of course, you're talking about a livable basic income. And I just want to clarify that for listeners. We're not talking about shoring up the uh, the large minimum wage employers of this world. Um, so a livable basic income. And, um, and so you kind of zeroed in on that. And you're part also of an activist group in Kingston. Talk about that a little bit. I am. Um, the Kingston Action Group for a Basic Income Guarantee, as I mentioned, formed in 2013. Um, it includes uh, a number of uh, retired Queen's professors, uh, people who've been involved in various kinds of advocacy for you know, most of their lives. It's been a highlight of my life to be involved in that group. It, it, we have, um, it's been very focused but fun and we've had we've had quite a few successes and members of our group are have been involved not just locally but provincially and nationally and i i would say kingston has really been part of a very fertile growth of the basic income movement to speak about that why kingston you know i've been to kingston i, I you know not for a long time but i've been there as many ontarians but but what is it about the kingston area and the kingston reality that has spurred poverty activists like yourself it's a that's a i think kingston's just the right size for um for activism and for many other things it's you know about one hundred and twenty-five thousand. Um, it's easy to get things done here because, you know, it's not six degrees of separation. It's usually two degrees of separation to just about anyone. Um, the, uh, another group that has been really active um, on this issue is Peterborough, which is, you know, a similar kind of size. And so, I mean, it's hard to know for sure. Partly is about the people who are here. But as I say, I do think it's relatively easy to um, have an influence and to to you know, circulate in different circles. For example, our group was just part of, the basic income group was part of the Pride weekend um, here in Kingston. We were at the, the Pride Fair on Saturday and in the March um, yesterday on Sunday. So it, it's just, it just seems really easy to get to know people and do things. Uh, now, basic income is an interesting issue because, and we spoke about this uh, um, just earlier uh, about week ago, almost, um, I was moderating a panel for Word on the Street in Toronto with you and Jamie Swift on the book. Um, and I want to go on to, to talk about how this got implemented in the pilot project. Uh, but before we get there, I, I just want you to say a few words because you, you know, they're both um, left and right supporters and left and right detractors from this issue. So say a bit about that. Um, you know, uh, it's not often that you get an issue where you've, you're kind of coming, you know, all sides are coming at you, also supporting you, but also coming at you. Talk about that political reality. 
Yeah, that's a, uh, it is a political reality. And it was one of our biggest surprises that people who we thought would be natural allies, people who'd been involved in basic income, or sorry, anti-poverty activism for years, uh, that were not with us. <laughs> um, and so on the on the right, I think the, the standard arguments are that, you know, people are lazy, they're lazy bums. And if you give people, quote unquote, money for nothing, then they won't do anything. Um, they'll just sit at home and watch TV and drink beer, <laughs> I suppose, um, or that it will cost too much. So those are the two, those are the two main objections, I would say principally from right, more from people who are more conservative. On the left, I think the concern, there, there are a few concerns, but um, one of them is that basic income is basically a Trojan horse that uh, will allow governments to strip away whatever is left of the, the welfare state. That, uh, that type of basic income has been advocated by right-wing um, economists like Milton Friedman, kind of a libertarian view that you give people money and then you take everything else away. There's no one in Canada who uh, is involved in the basic income movement who advocates that kind of minimalist libertarian um, model of basic income. Another argument is that it's subsidizing low wage employers. And it's taken me a while to figure that out because my idea of basic income is that it would be adequate for people to walk away from really from their poorly paid jobs if they were being badly treated or work conditions were unsafe, or maybe there's a global pandemic and you might need to take a few days off. You could do that without worrying about being hungry or homeless. Um, but in the States, there is there are a lot of proposals for basic income that are really more supplemental rather than adequate. And I think if, if I were starting all over again back in 2013, I think we, the, the phrase guaranteed livable income might be more explicit about what about the kind of basic income we want. So there are some on the left who say, you know, it's it's subsidizing low wage employers, um, which is not, again, not the kind of basic income we want. And then I, there's also, you know, there, are, there are people who are worried about the jobs of uh, the civil servants and bureaucrats who administer our income security programs. Um, particularly on social assistance, where there's quite a large number of people who are really policing and controlling uh, the lives of recipients. Um, I would argue that those people could be, those workers could be put, <laughs> they could be doing more meaningful work and, and more support, work that would be more supportive of people living on low incomes. And then I think, you know, there are some really hardcore um, types who are really wanting to, um, you know, uh, really it's all about the revolution. And unless it's going to contribute to the revolution, then they're not interested. <laughs> I mean, I think having a roof over your head and food in your belly helps contribute even to a revolution. But there you go. Um, that would so be we, my we, perspective as well, that if we want that we want low income folks to be participants in our society and in our democracy, they have to have, you have, you know, Maslow's hierarchy is pretty clear. You need basics, food and shelter before you can move on to other concerns. So. Now you spoke about your um, your group in Kingston, which has been a support a source of support and also action. Um, have you also sort of been with been working with people with lived experience? 
um, in poverty. So maybe maybe flesh that out a little bit for us. Uh, that's an area where I think Peterborough has had a big uh, uh, arm or leg up over Kingston. We've made a few efforts to involve people who um, have lived experience of poverty. We're, we haven't been that good in that in the kind of grassroots organizing like that. Um, I think Peterborough has actually done a much better job there, and it's part of the trajectory of their activism that they're um, more connected on the ground with low-income groups. So um, we've we've done some, but I would say we haven't managed to keep um, kind of sustain the involvement of of low-income people. Um, that well that's I think one of the things that we recognize as a real weakness but I mean it's understandable since those low-income folk are too busy trying to find income and housing to get involved um, which is why activists like yourself are so essential um, that can take the time we have the time Um, we have the mental energy we don't have that those kind of pressing um, constraints on on us every day Um, Before we leave the issue of poverty, I want to um, cite an example of, uh, because we've just lived through a pandemic, of how we're not all in this together, how some of us are way more in it than others. And um, you give an example that's very close to home in Toronto of St. Jamestown and Rosedale in that book, which which I thought was just... um, so stark. Uh, so I don't have the exact figures in front of me, but suffice to say in St. Jamestown, a community of renters and low-income folk, um, the number of cases per 100,000 of COVID were um, over 600. And just a couple of miles away in Rosedale, one of the wealthiest neighborhoods in Toronto, um, it was uh, or 72, I think was the number I remember. Um, so that's a stark difference between those who have mostly essential workers have to go to work, have to get on crowded buses and, you know, and then have to get there and have to risk their lives. Whereas the wealthy people can sit at home and work on Zoom, right? People with privilege, like (laughs) us. (laughs) Yeah, got it. (laughs) Um, So, um, so that's, uh, so that's stark. That's poverty and how it, talk about social determinants of health. That's how it actually gets people sick and kills people, um, you know, and, and still is. So just to give a nod to that. Um, well, so I was also, sorry, Sherry, also just like to say that some of those workers who are, many of those workers who are going to work are the ones that enable us to stay home. They're the ones, you know, delivering our food. They're at the grocery stores. They're in the meatpacking plants. They're the Amazon workers delivering packages to our door. So the, our health is literally on their backs at this, at, in this pandemic. And uh, it infuriates me that we can't imagine that, you know, people deserve paid sick days uh, in the midst of a global pandemic, as one small example. Um, we are, those workers are, um, it's just like they're part of the machinery. We'll just use them up and then throw them away when, when they're done. And so this is one of the areas that I think, you know, we often talk about basic income in relation to people on social assistance, but it's also... Um, potentially uh, a great benefit to low-wage workers. And in fact, some of the research that's been done in Hamilton showed that the people who are working precarious work, multiple multiple um, jobs, short shifts, that the stability of the basic income in the Ontario basic income pilot actually benefited 
them even more than people on social assistance. So it, um, I think the ways in which we're um, related and our relationships are affecting those low wage workers is a, a important, important to highlight in, in that sense that, you know, we're not all in the same boat, we're all in the same storm. And, but yet what we're doing and has a big impact on the lives of others. And certainly, uh, by the way, speaking to Elaine Power, Professor Elaine Power here, uh, professor at Queen's, um, but also co-author of the book, The Case for Basic Income, along with Jamie Swift, um, as one of our anti-poverty activists, who's really accomplished a great deal. Um, certainly, um, there's a, a bill that was in the last federal parliament um, uh, for uh, uh, basic income, uh, Leah Gazan, uh, Lakota Leah, as we call her. Um, uh, hopefully, she'll bring that back in the new one. She was reelected. Um, and you're also, and I want to make this clear to listeners, you're not saying that this is the be all and end all answer. We still need housing, we still need other things. Um, but we did have an example of what it might look like with CERB, with the That's 2000 right. a month. So maybe yeah. speak about how that helped the cause. So um, first, uh, I mean, there, there, I think there are five things in my head at the moment. <laughs> but um, first of all, um, uh, we think basic income is necessary but insufficient. You know, it it could be the the core or the pillar of a revitalized social safety net. But it, by all means, we're not saying it's a silver bullet. We need, also need we especially need affordable housing. We need action on the opioid crisis. We need you know, transportation, public transit and childcare and all the rest. So um, it's, we are not advocating um, a minimalist basic income. We're advocating a, a basic income plus much more. Um, and yes, the CERB, uh, the Canada Emergency Response Benefit, it was a kind of basic income, um, but it's not the kind we want. It was, it was conditional. So it was conditional on having lost employment because of the pandemic. Um, and it was, of course, it was short lived, but it did, it showed us that it's possible to deliver a benefit through the income tax system. It, I mean, it, it certainly had problems, but it was rolled out so quickly and so effectively. I mean, the effectiveness on, on such short notice is really remarkable. And so if we put a little more um, time and attention into the, the structure of it, if we were doing it on a permanent basis, I think it it showed that it is definitely possible. Um, and it also made people, I think it gave all of us the sense that government can be a force for good and government can support its citizens um, at, in times of need. We saw millions, seven million, over 7 million people collected CERB and they had lost their employment through no fault of their own. And so the, I think the challenge is going to be to extend that um, across the working age population. We also have in Canada, uh, the old age security and the guaranteed income supplement, which is a kind of basic income. And uh, in terms of food insecurity, we know that when low income people turn 65, their rate of food insecurity drops in half because the benefit of the guaranteed income supplement and old age security and the, the child benefits as well, the Canada child benefit, although you know a smaller amount is also a kind of basic income. So we already have examples of it. We just want uh, working age people to also have that kind of benefit and to be able to have enough to live on. And, and the CERB showed us that uh, you know maybe about $2,000 a month 
is a reasonable amount. So, um, so now we know why we need it. We know what you're fighting for, but you actually got a win. You actually got a pilot project. Uh, it was cut short, yes, but it was there. Uh, talk about the pilot project, what, what it was, um, uh, how you got it. I'm particularly interested in that. And yeah. then uh, the, re the results such as they were from it. So I think it's first it's important to say, you know, you, you've been saying that uh, I had a win, but really I'm, I'm part of a, a mass movement and a, a much, much larger group. And I, in preparation for this interview, I was kind of reviewing the pieces. And it's a really nice example of how things sometimes come to fruition unexpectedly and they don't just come out of nowhere. <laughs> so, um, the Ontario Basic Income Pilot was announced by Premier Kathleen Wynne in 2016 in the budget. It was a surprise to almost everyone. We weren't, we did, we had no idea. We didn't expect it. Um, I think even in the government, many people were surprised. Um, and and so the pilot began in 2017. And I think it's pretty clear that the Premier Kathleen Wynne was really the person who drove who drove that. She had learned about the MinCom experiment, um, Canada's earlier basic income experiment in the 1970s in Manitoba. And so it was um, a, 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 an experiment, a collaboration between the federal and provincial government at the time and ran for four years in the 1970s. And um, it, it's, it's, I think for people interested in social policy, it's, um, it's one of those things that many people learned about and uh, it, it didn't get evaluated and it kind of died, it faded into the distance for, for many years until the economist Evelyn Forger went back to the archives and found 1800 bankers boxes of data <laughs> and started analyzing them all. So Evelyn Forger is one of the people who's kind of one of the, the players in uh, one of the many players in this picture because without her work going back to analyze those results I don't know that we would have gotten the pilot um, and without Kathleen Wynne you know being really involved um, she um, put poverty on the liberal government's agenda as part of the women's caucus of the, the liberal provincial liberal government uh, provincial liberals and when she became premier she decided she wanted to do something about poverty. She wanted to be the social justice premier. So she um, and her her senior aide, James Gennaro, um, are, is another player in this. So when Kathleen Wynne became the premier, we, uh, our group, uh, one of the members of our group wrote to her and talked, you know, kind of had an exchange about basic income. A couple of our members went into Toronto to speak with James Gennaro about our support for basic income. And James uh, was one of the people who put the design together for the pilot. Um, Hugh Siegel is another person who's a player in this. Um, Hugh's been a lifelong advocate for basic income, worked with the Bill Davis government back in the 70s to implement the, a guaranteed income supplement provincially for seniors that then went nationally. So it's, it's, I, it's actually a fascinating example of how the seeds were planted really back in the 1970s. We had David Kroll, the Kroll report from the Senate in 1971 that 
recommended a guaranteed annual income to address poverty in Canada. So the, the seeds have been there. They were they were planted and they lay dormant for many years. And then I think, uh, you know, Kathleen Wynne was the person who watered the seeds so that they they came to fruition in the Ontario Basic Income Pilot. True, Before, she was necessary, but uh, not to, I mean, this is so typical, I just have to say, uh, so as, as a, another woman, <laughs> um, yes, she was, but she, this would not have happened without you and your group and your folk, Elaine. So let's get back to that. Yes, the seeds are planted, but you watered them and watched the flower bloom. So, so we have not that many minutes left. Talk about what happened with this pilot project. We know the current Conservative government ended it. We don't want to focus on the negative news. We want to focus on what's the good news that came out of that experience. We could say that the, that the uh, current government pulled the plant up by its roots, but perhaps. <laughs> but no, I think um, between, I mean, I guess some, some people would say that there's no negative publicity. And in fact, the cancellation of the pilot um, kind of spread the word even more about what the benefits had been. The, the really, the, one of the tragedies, of course, there were 4,000 people enrolled in the Ontario Basic Income Pilot. They had counted on three years of funding um, and had many of them had reorganized their lives, um, were going back to school, had started small businesses, were doing other things, uh, moved into more expensive housing, believing, trusting that the Ontario government was going to continue those payments as promised for three years. Um, and the, and the, the basic income pilot the amount that people received was still under the poverty line, but it was about double what people were getting on social assistance. So um, it was a huge blow when it was canceled. We have some, the, the, one of the tragedies is that we lost the opportunity to collect uh, scientific data, really rigorous. There was a very rigorous evaluation plan that had been put in place and we couldn't, we only have the baseline data. We couldn't collect any data about um, what happened after the, the pilot unrolled um, or rolled out? But um, there's been some, you know, some some analysis of the baseline data and some qualitative analysis. All of the research that's been done suggests that the pilot was transformative for in people's lives. So their health improved. People, um, you know, people who had were overweight lost weight. People who were thin gained weight. People stopped going to the doctor. They could eat better food. They were um, much less stressed. You know, parents said that they they were better parents because they were less stressed and had more um, more brain space, <laughs> to more energy to to be parent to be good parents. To me, that's one of the things that breaks my heart about the cancellation. Um, yeah, I, there was one intensive um, town at Lindsay, Ontario, where. Um, there was, I mean, pretty much everybody that had been on social assistance went on to the basic uh, income pilot project. Uh, and that transformed the town itself, didn't it? Talk about that a bit. Yes. Uh, so Lindsay was what's called a, a saturation site. Um, it was meant to approach the Dauphin, Manitoba. Pretty much anyone who lived in poverty in the town would be eligible to participate. 
And so what the plan was, uh, the original plan was to see that the, not just the impact on individuals and their families, but also in the community. And so we know, for example, we, we learned that the, the housing corporation that runs the public housing units in Lindsay had a, had a big surplus because people were paying more rent. And so they had $300,000 that they could reinvest in improving the housing stock we know that some of the local businesses were thriving, that the pawn shop was um, selling things rather than buying things from people. Um, so, you know, people were reclaiming their goods at the pawn shop. And, um, you know, it was described that there was just, there was kind of, a, things were just more cheerful. <laughs> and, there, and there was kind of a noticeable um, up, uplifting mood in the town. So, uh, I mean, who knows? over three years, what that might have looked like over time. Uh, speaking again to um, Elaine Power here, Professor um, of Kinesiology and Health Studies at, at Queen's in Kingston, and also co-author of Case for Basic Income, along with Jamie Swift. And um, on this show, because she's been one of those activists, actually got the government to do something, which is, which is a remarkable feat. And, uh, and, you know, many, many have tried and few have succeeded at that. And so it's an absolute delight to speak to very quickly. We just have two minutes left, but very quickly. What's next? What, what are you going to do in the future now? Oh, we're, we're definitely gearing up for the next provincial election in June of 2022. And uh, you might suspect that uh, maybe it's going to be a, an ABC campaign, anything but conservative. Um, we really want to put basic income on the agenda for the provincial election and for the next federal election. We're doing a lot of work nationally, be kind of behind the scenes. Um, we have the support of some incredible politicians like Senator Kim Pate um, and some others who are really pushing the agenda at the federal government level. And so I think um, in a sense, the election kind of re-energized us. Um, I, I've been feeling quite rather despondent after the pandemic experience and the, you know, that we weren't able to get CERB uh, to be a permanent basic income. But I think we're, we're geared up now for a that basic income will be a central platform uh, of, of at least one party in the next federal election. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Elaine Power. Thank you for being and thank you for doing. Um, and uh, hope the book is a success, uh, but more to the point, I hope uh, guaranteed livable income is a success. Keep on keeping on. Thanks so much.